Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. You said, let the little children come to you, Lord, and we pray for the, the children here, and we pray that as they go to the friends of Jesus, that you would teach them, that you would open their hearts, Lord, so that they would come to understand you. I also pray for the sermon, Lord, that you would speak through me, Lord, that you would bless us, Lord, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Morning, church. Zechariah chapter 9, 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. In 1949, English author George Orwell published his dystopian novel, 1984, that in many respects, a futuristic prophetic literature written at the end of the World War II and at the onset of the Cold War. The story is set in Airstrip One, formerly known as the Great Britain, which is a province of a larger supernation called Oceania. They were under a political system known as INSOC, English Socialism. And the official language is called Newspeak, an invented language. The government is controlled by the elitist inner party that persecutes individualism and independent thinking, calling it the thought crime. The supernation Oceania is led by a tyrant leader called the Big Brother, who has a cult following. The story is told from the point of view of the main character, Winston Smith, who is a member of the outer party, but he, he, wish, he wishes the overthrow of the government secretly. But Winston works for the government in the Ministry of Truth that is responsible for propaganda and for historical revisionism. Oceania under the Big Brother, is in constant war with the super, other supernations. Sounds a lot like the Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? In fact, Prophet Zechariah was writing this book in a similar environment around 520 BC. 
It was after their return from the Babylonian exile. The Jewish people, though allowed to return to the Palestine region, were still under the rule and paying taxes to the Persian king, Darius Hystaspes. The taxes were particularly high as King Darius was preparing a campaign against Egypt. And the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem has taken halt because of powerful opposition. And the Jewish cities were in ruins. The people's sense of identity, dignity, and the security of their home were in precarious condition. God seemed so distant from this little people, a byword for the nations. And in their discouragement, they felt it is expedient to pursue the best life possible instead of obeying God. In this context, the prophet does his job of calling the people to return to the Lord so that the Lord of hosts will return to them. The Lord will return to them with blessings, mercy, and prosperity to them and over Jerusalem. The Lord of hosts will pay back to the enemies of Israel and Judah who oppress them. That is the transition we see from chapter 8 to chapter 9 in the book of Zechariah. But the Lord of hosts is coming to bless his people. First, as a humble king. Second, as a peaceful ruler. Third, as the crucified savior. These are the three points of my sermon today. First, the, hum the humble king. We read in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This verse is calling the people of God to rejoice greatly with shouts of joy and gladness. I don't know about you, but the last couple of months have been deeply concerning and troubling times for me. With the divisive election exacerbated by the news, news coming from Aleppo about the children and the orphans, and the war going on in Yemen that nobody talks about, and in South Sudan. And last week, the Baltimore City homicide rate climbed over the 300 mark, making 2016 one of the worst violent years in the history of this city. Brothers and sisters, we are called here to rejoice greatly and shout aloud and behold, but why? Because the king of the universe, the creator of all things, is coming and in fact has come. The Jesus, the Messiah, the ruler of heaven and earth has come and we need to welcome him. This is the reason of the celebration of the Advent season and the series of sermons we have been fo focusing on. Malachi and Ma Micah. 
King Jesus has come to bring salvation and deliverance to the people living under the curse of sin. Oppression, injustice, disease, violence, divisions, disharmony, and death. Five days before the Passover, Apostle John writes in the Gospel, even though the people cried out as Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a young donkey, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, John records. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Matthew as well records this paradoxical triumphal entry of the long-awaited king of the Jews into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. One of the commentaries says, in the, near, in the ancient Near East, if a king came in peace, he would ride on a donkey, instead on a war stallion. The king here is both righteous in his character and in his reign. The righteousness he brings is an active righteousness as opposed to passive. That is to say that so-and-so is coming with a cool person with a lot of wealth or a rich person. It's not that kind of coming he's talking about. In Isaiah 11, we read, this king delights, he shall delight, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ear hears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This king comes to establish righteousness. The king also comes to bring deliverance and bring salvation to his people. In a similar fashion, he comes as a powerful deliverer. Isaiah echoes say the same thing in Isaiah 62, 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Not only does this king bring justice and deliverance actively to bless his people, but also he comes in humility. Unlike the tyrannical big brother of the Oceania, the Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and the King Darius of Persia. The principal expression of the humility of our Lord is revealed in the coming of Jesus, the human. The message translation reads this truth in truth we find in John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word here is in Greek is logos, with a capital W in our English expression. It has a different meaning in Greek philosophy and psychology and rhetoric. But to understand the biblical and theological meaning out of the Gospel of John, 
we can say the logos here is through whom everything was made and he is divine. Logos is the unseen ultimate reality. This logos became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The ESV study Bible notes talks about this verse. This is what it says. This is the most amazing event of all history. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy Son of God took on a human nature and lived among humanity as one who was both God and man at the same time in one person. The word became flesh. Luke records Christ came and he was born in a manger as there was no room for them in the inn. Manger is a long, narrow, open container for animals to eat and drink out of. With his earthly parents, he was a refugee fleeing for safety after his birth. The word became one of us fully as a human with body, mind, emotion, and will. He grew in wisdom and stature like any one of us and found favor with God and man. In the Gospels, we read Jesus while doing his ministry he grows hungry and tired, eats and drinks, plays with children, rests and sleeps, prays and seeks time alone. Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, and he was filled with indignation at the devastation death brings to life. He fights temptation, anxiety and fear, he was moved with love and compassion, and he weeps over Jerusalem. The series of emotions attributed to our Lord in the evangelical narrative, in their variety and in their complex, but the harmonious interaction illustrate, though of course they cannot themselves, cannot of themselves demonstrate this balanced comprehensiveness in his individuality. Various as they are, they do not inhibit one another. Compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. Joy and sorrow meet in his heart and kiss each other. Strong as they are, not mere joy, but exaltation. Not mere irrit irritated annoyance, but raging indignation. Not mere passing pity, but the deepest movement of compassion and love. Not mere surface distress, but an exceeding sorrow even unto death. They never overmaster him. He remains ever in control. This was B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian on the humanity of Christ. He was uh, writing this in the late 19th century. You can understand from the words and sentences. Jesus came into a politically divided world where a man like Matthew, the tax collector, with allegiance to the occupying Roman Empire, and Simon the zealot, who was part of a 
Jewish liberation movement lived in the same town. Jesus, the Son of God, became friends with both and united them as his disciples and apostles. This was uh, recently covered in the community group studies from Penn Lucy focus group. How relevant is this study, this uh, truth for us today in order to practice and model? The NIV reads, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The divine Jesus, the divine man Jesus was glorious, full of grace and truth. If Christ had not become man, he wouldn't have been in a need for a transportation, let alone a donkey for that matter. Applications for us. What does the humble king who comes riding on a donkey teach us? We bring blessing to people by embodying ourselves as fully as human and treating our neighbors as fully human. That means first, we affirm and value all people and their human feelings by listening to them with deep appreciation consideration for the image of God in them as human beings, though they are fallen and sinful, instead of analyzing them with reason, opinions, or even critiquing them with biblical worldview, at, wo at worst, condemning them. Second, we discern what is true from fake, and we speak the truth with grace. Thirdly, we sympathize with our neighbors by becoming relationally engaged with them. Therefore, in his appeal to the people of God, the prophet Zechariah cries out in Zechariah 7, 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This takes us to the second point about this coming king. That he is a peaceful ruler. Verse 10 reads, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. King Jesus comes in peace to inaugurate his kingdom. And his kingdom has three unique characteristics. First, it's a peaceful kingdom. Second, it is united. Thirdly, it is a universal kingdom. It's a peaceful kingdom. God will cut off the chariot, war horse, and the battle bow. That means all the apparatus of the warfare will disappear in order to establish this kingdom, this peaceful kingdom, born not out of physical force 
or violence. Second, it's the United Kingdom, not the UK, just voted for Brexit. They asked in 1984. The people of God, one commentator says, the people of God are designated as Ephraim and Jerusalem. Thus the citizens of the former northern kingdom cast off by, cast off by God as not my people, that means Gentiles, in Hosea 1.9, are joined by Jews in the messianic kingdom envisioned here in the church of Jesus Christ. The partition separating Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. Those who are far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. His kingdom is a multi-ethnic, multinational, and a multi-racial kingdom, not one with divisions. The church of Jesus Christ is a prelude to the kingdom that will come to full fruition in the second coming of Christ. This is our destiny and our hope in the new heaven and new earth, according to the book of Revelation, as we see people from every nation and, peop and nation and people group and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. Thirdly, a universal kingdom. The Messiah shall speak peace to the nations, to both Jews and Gentiles, as we saw earlier. The kingdom shall not be limited to Jews and to the promised land. Jesus unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and read in the synagogue, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. As he inaugurates, the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 4. The kingdom of God would advance through the proclamation of the good news, the gospel, and the demonstration of peace, the shalom. Peace with God, peace with one another, peace within and out with the rest of creation. The ambassadors of the king would take this good news to the ends of the earth, from sea to sea. Apostle Thomas came to India during the second century to proclaim this peace to the people of India. And he was martyred in, in Tamil Nadu, South India. Christianity came to Sri Lanka, where I was born, during the seventh century, and it has reached to China around the same time. The kingdom of Jesus Christ extends far beyond the walls of the church. As we welcome the humble king, shall we also let him lead us in procession into the streets of Baltimore and this nation and the rest of the world to proclaim this message of peace. So we arrive at the final point about this king, the crucified savior. Zechariah 9.11 reads, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
the messianic king will release the prisoners out of the waterless pit. If the prisoners were left there in the pit where there is no water, they would eventually die. It, is, it brought to my memory how in Genesis we read Joseph was thrown into the waterless pit by his jealous and angry brothers. It is a desperate and helpless condition to be thrown into a waterless pit. It says, because of the blood of this messianic king's covenant with his people, he will set the prisoners from the waterless pit. What is the covenant? One way to put it is to say, covenant is the fundamental, fundamental engine that drives forward the biblical story. Michael Williams, one of my professors at Covenant Seminary, says, a covenant is a relationship between persons begun by the sovereign determination of the greater party in which the greater commits himself to the lesser in the context of mutual loyalty and which mutual obligations serve as illustrations of that loyalty. God made covenants with these people starting from Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David in a loving, relational context to bless them. Crippled by sin, as prisoners in a waterless pit, none of them could keep those covenants with God. In fact, all of humanity is held as prisoners in the waterless pit by the bondage of sin and the snare of the devil. God must make a new covenant with his people. Therefore, Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, at his last Passover meal with his disciples, he blesses the cup and tells his disciples, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A few hours later, Christ was crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal, and he dies an agonizing death. The Messianic King, Jesus, comes humbly as a human being, as the true Adam to fulfill all the obligations of the law and the covenants of God by the life he lived and the death he dies, shedding his blood, 
so that we are released from the waterless pit of sin. Forgiven of our sins, we are brought into his family in the kingdom of God that is peaceful, that is harmonious, and that is universal. We are called to be the ambassadors of this humble king and his kingdom. So what is our response, people of God? Are we rejoicing greatly with shouts of joy and gladness and beholding the beauty of this humble king? Is he welcome in our hearts and in our homes? Or are you in the waterless pit of sin? Are we willing to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of peace in the ministries we do in the church and outside? Are we willing to love our enemies and the people who are different from us to the point of losing our honor, security, and our lives? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you, our humble king, our peaceful ruler, and our crucified Savior. Lord, help us to behold you. Help us to behold the beauty that we may be transformed, that we may be a people, Lord, that proclaims your kingdom that demonstrates the shalom that you came to inaugurate in this world. That we would be the hope for the world, light for the nations, Lord. We pray that you would be with us as we meditate on you this Advent season, that you would become clear to us, Lord. That we would rejoice and be glad with shouts of joy in our hearts, Lord. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.